0: I'm the oldest of five kids and uh it was pretty fun a lot growing up. I did have people that I could play with, but ha- being the oldest of five kids, you might think that I was kind of never lonely growing up as a kid. I was never alone. But I think that some of you can attest to the fact that there's kind of a special kind of loneliness when you're in a crowd. Uh, that that and I was kind of always in a crowd. Uh, but whether we can be lonely for a lot of different reasons, whether it's because our friends have moved away or maybe because a loved one has died. Uh, we, we can actually, a, 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 an illness that we experience can, a, can also, we can experience a, a loneliness in that. It can feel really isolating. Uh, we suffer sometimes in loneliness. Uh, maybe, maybe you know what I'll say, even struggling financially can make us feel very lonely. We, don't, we, don't, we can't necessarily talk with everybody about it. We feel like nobody else can really understand. So we can feel isolated. We we can feel isolated because of sin patterns in our lives that separate us, uh, because we feel like, again, we can't tell anyone. So, what do you do when you feel lonely? Maybe even when God feels distant in those moments. Sometimes we feel like, in those moments, it's easy for us to try to pin it on somebody else. It's someone's fault it's it's nice if it's someone else's fault but we we can also think that it's because of something wrong that we've done but we would we want to find out who's to blame for this thing but i'll tell you the perfect person the one who had never sinned the one who had never committed a fault the person who had a perfect prayer life that man experienced crushing loneliness as well Jesus had been telling his followers that at some point he was going to die. He knew that it was a, not just like off in the distant future, but that he was going to die. And by that time, by the time he did die, he was abandoned by his friends. Uh, actually, they had fallen asleep on him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was in a moment of anguish. They, he went to this sham trial, and during that experience, one of his best buds, Peter, Denied even knowing him at all three times. If you have experienced pain, if you have been or if you are lonely, I want to tell you a kind of remarkable thing is that the Messiah, our King, our Lord, God Himself, has experienced pain and darkness and loneliness. And we're going to see what He does in that instance and, and how that can maybe help us to move in a new, good direction, to move toward the light, as Jay said. We have been looking at questions Jesus asked. That's why the big question mark behind me. We've been looking in, in the Gospels, these biographies of Jesus, to look at the different, many different questions that Jesus asked. He asked a lot of them. He asked maybe 307 questions, but we have looked at a few of them, and those questions show that Jesus is a really master question asker. He's so good at it because the questions that he asks help us to see something new about what God is like, something about our own hearts, and oftentimes push us to move toward God, to help people to move toward God and take steps toward him. So we are only going to look at two more questions this week and next. So for Easter is our final question. And today's question is a little bit different because all the other questions have been asked to another person just kind of a natural thing to do. But this week's question is actually directed toward God himself. Our question for today is Jesus' plaintive cry on the cross. I think there's a slide for this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe you are thinking, actually, today we are supposed to, this is, this is, the, this is the topic that's supposed to be for Friday, right? Today is Palm Sunday. Um, uh, Good Friday is the day that we mark Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, A lot of churches today will be celebrating uh, Palm Sunday, which is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, preparing for that final week of his life. Uh, um, In the biographies of Jesus, it's actually called Palm Sunday because uh, when Jesus was coming, the, the people saw him coming, not on a horse, which would be like an image of war, but he came in humility on a donkey, And as he came, the the people started uh, putting their coats on the ground and and ripping off branches from the trees nearby, including palm branches, and and laying them on the path in front of him as a sign of respect for him as he was coming. And they, they quoted scripture. They quoted a psalm. They said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that was the beginning of this final week of Jesus's life. And and the Gospels actually zoom in on that period of his life. And I I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but there's a disproportionate amount of the Scripture in the the Gospels on Jesus on his final life, the final week of his life. Uh, The Gospel of Mark that we're going to be reading today uh, dedicates about a third of the book just to that final week of his life. And the Gospel of John that we're going to be looking at next week on Easter, about halfway through the book is when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and we see this beginning. So really half of the book of John is dedicated to that whole week, just one week. We can see the importance that they've given just in space of pages to that week. And so that is the beginning. That's what we celebrate today on Palm Sunday. But for us, we are skipping ahead. We're skipping to Friday because we're doing the questions Jesus asked. Uh, So this is going to be after Jesus's couple of two to three years of ministry, there's these powerful moments where he was surrounded by huge crowds at times. This is after he had had an intimate meal with his disciples, these key students, where he he ended up washing his disciples' feet. We talked about that. Alma preached on that last week. This eating of the Passover meal, uh, which was a, a foreshadowing of his own it was, there's this deep symbolism of the Passover meal. The, the, the people of God had been eating it for hundreds and hundreds of years, not only to commemorate God bringing them out of Egypt, but Jesus is going to re-symbolize it to show that the reason why they've been doing it all along was pointing forward to his own death, that he would be the Lamb of God, who would be the true Passover Lamb to give his life. To protect and give a ransom for many this event that we 're going to look at this is after jesus' sham trial where he was found guilty for no reason and we're going to read that let's let's pray as we before we get into the scriptures. Father, we ask you to, to teach us today may your holy spirit be at work in our hearts, guiding us to see Christ for who he really is. may we be people who are put ourselves under the word and allow ourselves to be taught by it. But I pray that we will hear your voice speaking even as I speak, that we'll be talking with you even as I talk, that really what we want to encounter is you. So we pray that we will hear you today in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be reading in the book of Mark. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and open that to Mark 15. Let you flip, uh, so just you, so you know, if you are new to this too, you know, there is a, a table of contents in your Bible and you can, there's no shame in looking it up. So the book of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 20, halfway through, one of the way that uh, Bible scholars say that, they say 20B, which means there's a period in the middle of that, um, in the middle of that, that uh, verse. So there you go, I'm gonna start after the period there. Then they led him out, to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, I love the the indication, say this is is a guy, we know who he is, father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And, and I, I, I want to, we're going to read some more, but I want to pause right there for a second. And doesn't it kind of strike you as a little bit strange how it's just kind of flat and matter of fact. It just says, hey, they, and they they cru- they crucified him. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. That's it. That's, that's all that it gives in the details. And, and there are things, I, I think the reason why, there's so little given there is because everybody knew what that meant. There's stuff that you and I understand kind of instinctively that we don't have to give a lot of details about. Imagine me saying to you, you know what, the other day, I had to go drop off a friend at LAX at rush hour. That reaction is because you know what that means, right? I don't have to say a lot more than that, right? I just say, that that was just a flat statement. If I said that to my, my friend in Paris, they'd say, what, what, what does that mean? I don't understand. Can't you give me some details? There's not a lot of details, and they didn't have to include a lot of details there because they knew what it meant. They had seen people crucified, and you have been on the 405 at rush hour. You know what that's like. We know instinctively, they knew instinctively what it meant because it was a part of the fabric of their lives. And the same thing to you, what, you know the 405 is a part of the fabric of your life and you know what it meant. And so the people in Jesus' time knew what that meant. They didn't have to say a lot more. He was crucified at 9 in the morning. Crucifixion was, was horrible. I don't need to go into all the details about it, but even, I'll tell you, the thinkers of the day cringed at the thought of crucifixion. Um, Here are the words of the Roman philosopher Cicero. Even the mere word cross must remain far, not only from the lips of the citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. Cicero is saying, hey, we shouldn't even think about this. It uh, doesn't sound like he's a real proponent for it, but he's like, I don't even want to think about this thing. A- it might be interesting to you to note uh, that in the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, there is not one mention of the word nail. It- it's not even in there. In all the four gospels, it doesn't mention it. Obviously, it's a part of it. it is, that word is actually used twice in the book of John. It is actu- actually after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus comes and shows himself to his disciples. And it says he showed them the nail marks where they were. So it's only afterwards that he shows them marks where they were. So it doesn't have to say anything about it. So the, the first people who heard this account, the people who, who heard this read to them or had the story told to them, they knew when it said they crucified him, they knew instinctively what that meant. They would have a feeling like you did. that You groaned when I said the 405. So, um, they knew what it meant. So, let's continue. Verse 26. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself." In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves he saved others they said but he can't save himself let this messiah this king of israel come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe those crucified with him also heaped insults on him what a terrible thought that the the guys who are actually crucified there with him are also joining in at least for a bit at noon Darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon. And at 3 in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a, lo- a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema thanai," which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. This verse the, the youth talked about in a uh, small group this week. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And, then, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So, these women were there to witness Christ's death, and they're also going to be the first ones who will witness Christ's resurrection. But now the crowds are gone. His faithful band of students has dispersed and scattered. And so there's this blessing. He does have a few who are there, but boy, it does feel very different than what it had been a week before. He mostly, I think, would feel abandoned. And in this moment, as he's on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First of all, that cry of Jesus might echo some feelings in your own heart. Maybe you have felt this in the past. Maybe you're feeling that even now. But it also might raise a question for you. I'm just going to be honest. It might raise a question for you. If you say, hey, wait, I thought that Jesus was God in the flesh. So how does this work? How can God abandon God? Uh, I worked for years among Muslim students in France and Uh, One of the most interesting things uh, was having uh, discussions with Muslim students to to take Muslim and Christian students together, and we would have discussions. And we would often take texts of the Quran with the Bible that that talked about a similar topic, and we would be able to discuss some of the similarities and some of the differences between them. Uh, The idea being that, that you really can see Christ shining out in those verses. Uh, we wanted to talk about it in a civil way. It was good, but we didn't pretend that they were saying the same thing. We never needed to act like that. They were not saying the same thing there, but we could see the similarity and the points of difference, and it all came back not just not to points of religious practice, but ultimately to Jesus. And Muslims in my groups, the groups, they would rightly point out. They would. They would say it's not just in this moment, you know, we can, we can ask that question here, but they would ask the question even about the incarnation, about Jesus becoming a man. That Does that mean then that, that God is not in heaven when that happened? It, it, he said, they would say things like, hey, if, if, if God became a man, who was there to answer our prayers during that time? Uh, and here is where it's probably helpful for us to think and to use some of the Bible's own language for Jesus, rather than to uh, just think about him just as God, but to use the, uh, one of the terms that's used for Jesus is the word of God. The Christ is the word of God made flesh. Uh, a, a word from somebody cannot be separated from them. The words that I say, I may have to apologize for them, but they cannot be separated from who I am. And, and I, I can write my words down and they become a little more permanent, but think about if God is much more than I am, then maybe God's word is also much more than what my word would be, and his word could be made human. So we can we, get, we can only take a little moment for this, I'm, I'm going to stick with this little digression just for a moment, but it is important because I think we don't often talk about the Trinity very often in church, not a lot directly. To, talk about it's a very distinguishing belief that we have as christians so our belief about the trinity we have to say it begins with the christ event it begins with jesus it wasn't something that we that we came about with because we said this would be a kind of interesting discussion to have to have a very much more complicated view of god than what we had previously it was it was first christians after encountering jesus the first believers who knew Jesus, the first believers who, who met this man and said, what category do we have for him? It was meeting Christ in these scriptures and, and this faith that brought them to a deeper understanding of what God's character was like. So throughout the Old Testament, the refrain was very clearly, there is one God. And Christians continue that song there is one god and there there's nothing that we believe about the trinity should ever jeopardize that you're doing it wrong if you say something more than that my muslim friends would say oh so you worship three gods no no not at all actually i think i I may have told this story before one person said that one time and and i i took a step back from him and he said what are you doing i said i don't want to be here when the lightning hits you (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry. No, that is not what Christians believe. Christians don't believe in three gods. Uh, so nothing we can say that will, uh, should jeopardize that. Uh, but Christ claims his life, his death, his resurrection. Everything pointed to an image that, that Jewish people would have been familiar with from Daniel 7. This image of this divine human that was there, and, and it's, it's the one who is next to the throne of God, who came from the throne of God. It's a very complicated passage, but it, um, I don't know how they would have understood it without the Trinity. But the Trinity is not something that you're naturally going to jump to to explain the universe, I will say that. But, but if we begin with Jesus, if we look at him we experience the work of the holy spirit in our lives then, then what we're doing is we're just trying to basically explain what we have experienced from god we're able to make that leap so the error that my muslim friends were committing is uh, if you want here's a fa- fancy technical term they call it's called modalism that god ha- fits into different modes like god like there's one god but then when he comes as jesus he puts on like the jesus mask and then later on he's wearing the holy spirit mask that is not what we believe it's not that god Uh, changes modes. It's not that. Uh, Like, now I'm on earth, now I'm doing this thing. That's not it. Um, God can't be fully bound by time, Uh, but it's it's not what we see in Scripture. Uh, Jesus, Christ the Son, was submitting to the Father, and uh, we we see that. So most of the images, I will say, if you have heard images to explain the Trinity, they all, all have pretty major flaws Uh, God is not like an egg. God is not like the sun. God is not uh, like water. Uh, The most accurate picture we have is something like this. Um, So there is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's about as close as we can get. (laughs) Right? So one God. And three persons that are connected, and yet they are not the same person, and so that's as if you if you would like to explore this some more to think about the Trinity, all that stuff. Um, Doug King is going to be teaching a class starting April twenty third uh, that you can explore a bit more about these kinds of questions. I would encourage you to to jump into that. I, I want you to sign up, and if this is the kind of stuff that keeps you awake at night, I want. I want to encourage you to do a deeper dive into the history. Maybe, maybe God is thinking that you should be studying theology. Maybe you should be the kind of person who uh, helps us to understand this and can explain it to regular people like us. Uh, but for most of us, I will say this. In Christ, this is the thing that we can say. In Christ, God definitely did suffer in the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus, but he remained divine. And there's some mystery in that as well. All right, back to our passage. So when the, when the people heard Christ yelling out, Eloi, Eloi, they thought he was calling for Eli, Elijah. What was happening, though, is that Christ was fully living into his humanity, but also into Psalm 22. This cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a quote from verse 1 of Psalm 22. He quotes the beginning to refer to the whole psalm. It's kind of like saying, hey, you know that speech, I have a dream? When, if we refer to that speech, you know, you know that I'm referring to, to all of the speech. Mountains and molehills and all of that kind of stuff. We're referring, it's evoking a powerful speech by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So when in quoting that first verse, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I want you to think about Psalm 22. Think about the whole thing. And that whole psalm is about this man who is also yet God. He's one who's standing in humanity's place. The one who was not sinful, who's standing in our place. And what we're going to do is, to be able to understand this a little bit better, what I'm, I'm gonna, it's a little bit of a weird sermon today, I'm sorry. Um, we're going to be, uh, I'm going to read this psalm. It, I guess it's better for us just to have more scripture and a little less Kurt. That's all right. Uh, that's an all right thing. Uh, I'm going to read this, and uh, I'm going to read it in the contemporary English version at CEV. It's, it's familiar enough to you. It's a very readable version, but it's going to hopefully sound a little bit different to you and maybe hit you in a new way. This is the psalm. My God, my God. Why have you deserted me? Why are you so far away? Have you ever felt like that? Won't you listen to my groans and come to my rescue? I cry out day and night, but you don't answer, and I can never rest. Yet you are the holy God, ruling from your throne and praised by Israel. Our ancestors trusted you and you rescued them. When they cried out for help, you saved them. And you did not let them down when they depended on you. But I am merely a worm, far less than human. I am hated and rejected by people everywhere. Everyone who sees me makes fun, even these guys being crucified next to me, and sneers. They shake their heads. They say, trust the Lord. If you're his favorite, let him protect you and keep you safe. Isn't that exactly what the people were just saying to him on the cross? You, Lord, brought me safely through birth, and you protected me when I was a baby at my mother's breast. From the day I was born, I have been in your care. From the time of my birth, you have been my God. Don't stay far off when I am in trouble with no one to help me. Enemies are all around like a herd of wild bulls. Powerful bulls from Bashan are everywhere. My enemies are like lions, roaring and attacking with jaws open wide. I have no more strength than a few drops of water. All my bones are out of joint, and my heart is like melted wax. My strength has dried up like a broken clay pot, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You, God, have left me to die in the dirt. Brutal enemies attack me like a pack of dogs, tearing at my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones and my enemies just stare and sneer at me. They took my clothes and gambled for them. That's at the end of that passage. Remember that? Don't stay far away, Lord. My strength comes from you, so hurry and help. Rescue me from the enemy's swords and save me from those dogs. Don't let lions eat me. You rescued me from the horns of wild bulls. And now there's going to be a change in the tone of the psalm here. There's still a few verses left. But remember, when, when Jesus was saying his cry, why have you forsaken me? It's, a, it's, a, it's the human cry that we all have at some point. But, it, but it's also, it's a, it's a cry of pain, but it's a, it's a cry that is connected, even through this psalm, to a promise of God. It's act of God. And the promise speaks to us in our pain and in our loneliness and, and in that pain and loneliness, loneliness, we can feel like, hey, nobody's piloting the universe. That's what it kind of sounds like up till this point. We feel like we just need to be the ones to take control of our lives. And, and we, we, even then, we end up figuring out that our lives end up kind of out of control. But the promise is that God is actually doing something. And, and, and I just want to put yourself in the position of, of Jesus' first followers. It must have felt super out of control. The guy that we thought was going to be king is now being crucified. It's over. The dream is over. But Jesus is saying that it's not over yet. Even if it looks like everything that they had been hoping for and expecting over these last few years was done for, it's not done. It it seems like someone else's decisions either mine or someone else's decisions have made this thing careen out of control. Maybe, maybe somebody messed up or maybe, maybe the world's just too powerful and they can thwart God's plans. Because I felt like this was God's plan, but maybe it feels like it's getting ruined. But there's Jesus dying and he's going to die. But there's this promise for us that even in the darkest of times, even when we feel forgotten, we aren't forgotten. And it's not about me just having enough enough energy to kind of finally seek after God. Like I would be the one to go, I could finally get the energy to go pursue God. No, what happened here is that God pursued us. Scripture tells us that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what's happening is that God is pursuing us. So when we are in our pain and in our loneliness, when we can't even cling to God's promises anymore, we feel like god's left us in the dust even then god enters in god's the one who's pursuing us and that's what it says psalm 20 or verse 22 and when your people meet i will praise you lord all who worship the lord now praise him it's kind of a decision like a there's, there's some movement here you belong to jacob's family that's another name for the, for israel and to the people of Israel, so fear and honor the Lord. The Lord doesn't hate or despise the helpless in all of their troubles. When I cried out, he listened and did not turn away. This is somebody who has experienced something. Maybe, maybe you've experienced God doing that in the past, and that can encourage you a little bit now. When your people meet, you will fill my heart with your praises, Lord. Look, that's not coming from inside. That's not saying, God, I'm going to be the one who's going to decide now, okay, I'm going I'm to force myself to do it. When your people meet, you, God, will fill my heart with your praises. And everyone will see me, keep my promises to you. The poor will eat and be full, and all who worship you will be thankful and live in hope. Everyone on this earth will remember you, Lord. People all over the world will turn and worship you. Imagine, that's, that's an amazing statement to think about when there's one man dying in Jerusalem. People all over the world will turn and worship you because you are in control. The ruler of all nations, all who are rich and have more than enough will bow down to you, Lord. Even if they think that they don't need you, they will bow down. Even those from the top all the way down to those who are dying and almost in the grave will come and bow down. In the future, everyone will worship and learn about you, our Lord. People not yet born, that's us, will be told, the Lord has saved us. So there is a promise that God is at work, and there's this act of God as well. Because on the cross, Christ cites this first line of Psalm 22, which directs our attention to the whole psalm, including this last verse. The Lord has saved us. People not yet born will be told the Lord has saved us. This is it's this triumphant cry. And we we, when we hear Psalm twenty two begun to be read, we should also hear the last verse echoing in our ears. These triumphant words. And what was happening on the cross is that that Christ, this perfect man, was winning salvation for us. Because he died for our sins. And if you are in Christ, you get the benefits of that. That God is the one who pours that into you. You don't have to muscle your way up to God. We can just say yes. So what should we do? What should we do? In in our loneliness, in our anguish, what should we do? Boy, I I think that we should ask God to fill us. That it can't come from us. So I I would like to give you a couple different options today uh, of things uh, you can do i would love to encourage you this week to talk to god in your isolation if you even can muster that ask for him to pour in that praise into you ask for faith that you can actually believe that when you pray that he actually does hear you sometimes we feel like maybe god doesn't want to hear us don't you hear that in psalm 22 but god does actually hear us And I want to encourage you in this Holy Week, maybe you should read something about the life of Jesus. Why don't you grab one of the the Gospels of Jesus, Mark or Luke, something like that, and read about, some about this life of Jesus. If you want to do the last week of Jesus, start maybe two-thirds of the way in, and you can read about what is happening to him. Because it's all about him, and he's the one who was God's initiative into our lives. God initiates with us. And it's interesting to think, what about all these people that did desert Jesus, that left him alone and felt isolated? How is he going to treat them, you think? We're going to see that next week at Easter when we uh, look at that. And Jesus is going to offer a welcome back, an unexpected welcome back to everybody. Maybe God wants to welcome you back as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these verses in Mark, the plaintive cry of Jesus on the cross. When, when we all desert him, he was still dying for us. He, he could have come down and did not. So we thank you for your initiative in our lives, God, whether that is uh, growing up and being able to go to church and having people love us. Maybe, maybe we have just experience your connection in this world, the people who have spoken your word to us. Lord, we pray that we will be people who, in our loneliness, that we can somehow trust you to fill us, to move toward that light of of hope that you are calling us to, that hope is in you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.